what is for sure a somber note. And if you're not upset, upset, sad, mad, worried, freaked out about what's going on in the world, you're just not paying attention. There's a lot going on. <clears throat> There's a lot of uh, wrongs that need to be righted. There's a lot of injustice that needs to be justiced. And I would call your attention to what is our place in the public discourse with everything that's going on, with a virus, with the unjust treatment and the unjust deaths of black people at the hands of policemen, at the hands of looters, at the hands of lawbreakers. What is our place in the public discourse? And I would ask you to hearken back to last week and what we talked about there, that I am to be, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I am to be more concerned with the needs of my neighbor than I am with my own rights. If you are not upset about the injustices that you see in the world, you do not share the heart of Christ. Christ is grieved. Christ is concerned. Jesus is active in our world. And the sins that are so blatant and so obvious are not going unnoticed by Him. And they should not go unnoticed by us either whether it be racial injustice, whether it be illegal activity of those who are protesting the racial injustice. What is our place in the public discourse? And it is always love. It is always a call for justice. It is always a call for us to bear the heavy burden that Bob was talking about this morning to share the gospel. To love and to serve other people more than we love and serve ourselves. And it doesn't matter which side of the spectrum that you're on, left or right. None of that matters in Christ. None of it matters in Christ. If you're on the right, the left is not your enemy. If you're on the left, the right is not your enemy. If you are in Christ... If you're on the left, the right is your neighbor. If you're on the right, the left is your neighbor... And we are called, and here's the key clause in all of this, in the power of the Holy Spirit of God to love and serve our neighbors. So please, mind your tone, mind your words, mind your activity on social media, when you're talking to other people. Ours is always the posture of love. And greater concern for others than for ourselves. I would dare say keep your opinion to yourself. And share the truth of the scriptures and the truth of God's love as a matter of first priority. I would be remiss if I didn't address something as we begin this morning. And I think our message this morning is going to speak to this powerfully as well. So... Let's begin with our message. There has been a whole lot of talk over the past few years. This is kind of a newer phenomenon. I remember actually talking about it when we were at the other building um, several years ago. 
there's been a lot of talk and discourse about who is the goat? Who's the goat? And we're not talking about fainting mammals, okay? People are asking and making statements about who is the greatest of all time. G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. If, if, you're, if you're old enough to remember or if you've seen video clips of Muhammad Ali, he would say, I am the greatest. Uh, ESPN just aired a miniseries about Michael Jordan that had people discussing whether or not he was the GOAT, the greatest of all time in the NBA. But you know what is rarely reached in these GOAT discussions? A consensus. For every person who says that Michael Jordan is the greatest, another one says LeBron James is. And another one says Wilt Chamberlain is. And somebody else says Clarence Weatherspoon is. You're like, who's Clarence Weatherspoon? He's like my all-time favorite Philadelphia 76er. So that's just me. I would say he's not real. Well, or it could be Jerry West, right? Right? There is usually not a consensus. It's rare, if not even non-existent, to find agreement when these GOAT discussions are happening because so many of them are based around our preferences, what we like, who we, who we enjoyed watching. I believe in my lifetime the greatest basketball player I've ever watched play was Michael Jordan. Does that mean he's the GOAT? It means he's the GOAT in my mind. Does that mean he's the greatest player of all time? No, it doesn't. And you're never going to reach a consensus where 100% of the people agree with what you say. Well, today, our disciple friends, these 12 guys who are traveling around with Jesus, they get a goat discussion going on. But it's an ill-advised goat discussion, and Jesus is going to give them an answer to their question of who the greatest is that they probably weren't expecting. So let's look at our passage today from Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. If you would please stand out of respect and reverence for the very words of God as we read these four simple, potent verses today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as is so often the case, we run the risk of missing the layers and the power in these four simple verses if we just hurry over them. God, help us over the course of the next several minutes to do exactly the opposite. Help us to rest, help us to labor, help us to search, help us to dig, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, to comprehend and then enflesh these words that we read today. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher and you are omnipotent. You are omniscient. You share the same qualities as God, being God, the Holy Spirit. So we trust you to teach us and instruct us, convict us, break us, Holy Spirit, that we might be more like Jesus to the praise of the glory of our great Father who is in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So much here. If you'll remember, uh, we said last week that the end of chapter 17 down through uh, near the end of chapter 20 is a lot of Jesus' teaching. It's a whole lot of red letters in a red letter Bible. And this is one of those um, great discourses in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus just really lays a lot out at one time. And we're going to see that from last week all the way through near the end of chapter 20. Uh, probably I'd, I'd consider the end of chapter 20 part of that as well. And remember we said that, that Jesus in these chapters is teaching focusing on his disciples as he prepares to make his soon approaching march to Jerusalem, where he said last week he will be betrayed into the hands of men, he will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised to life again. Now, sometimes he's going to initiate these teachings in the next few chapters. Sometimes they will. The disciples will ask questions and he'll answer them. Through it all, we will see that these guys, like us, remember... We are they, they are we. We'll see that these guys are in desperate need of further instruction. And they're definitely needing corrected and shown what this kingdom of the heavens is all about. Because guess what? They still don't get it. Here we are, chapter 18 out of 28. And they still don't get it. We're less than six months away from Jesus' crucifixion. And they still don't get it. Can I... Can I get a, yeah, me too? Yeah. So Jesus will oblige them. He will correct them. He will show them. He will teach them. He will instruct them. He will rebuke them. So let's look at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I just got to start this verse with wow. Wow. Is there any indication that maybe, just maybe, this is not the right approach at this time for these men on this subject? We've said many times in our journey through Matthew's gospel that Matthew is endeavoring to present Jesus as the king. The king of the Jews, the king of the universe, the king of the kingdom of heaven. And over and over, Matthew has shown Jesus as reigning over the physical and the spiritual, displaying kingly qualities in various settings. And that kingliness has obviously communicated to the disciples. They get that he's the king. But they don't really see their place in his kingdom. They don't see the true fullness of his kingdom, and they don't see their place in that kingdom. We've seen them question a few times about this kingdom that Jesus has referred to in his working and his teaching, but it seems that consistently they've missed the main points of Jesus' teachings on his kingdom. He's taught that this kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. He has taught that this kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, And belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He's compared that kingdom to wheat and tares growing side by side. He's made it clear that this kingdom suffers violence in the present world system. And he's made it clear that this kingdom is fraught with narrow gates, hard roads, and crosses. And while the kingdom surely is that everlasting kingdom like Daniel had had seen handed over to one like a son of man way back when... The then and there has to be reached through the here and now. 
And the here and now is to be a series of weanings and weakenings. Weaning us from our dependence on the world and its treasures and weakening our grip on those things. Jesus is calling His men to embrace suffering and humility now, knowing that if the world hated Him, which it did, then it will hate them as well. If the world persecuted Him, which it did, it will persecute them. And so we get that idea as we look at this verse, and at that time. What time is this referring to? Well, remember last week we said that Jesus and his men had returned to Capernaum, kind of back in their hometown, their base area, after having been away up north on their travels. And last week we saw Peter confronted by some tax collectors as he walked around the streets of their hometown there. And then he talked to Jesus about what they asked him, does your master pay the taxes or not? He says, yes. Remember that? Does your master not pay the taxes? Yes. Which we, we, we do on a base. Jesus then sent him fishing in order to get a coin that will pay the temple tax for Peter and Jesus. Now, at that time, that's the time being referred to here. Jesus and his disciples are in Capernaum. Again, kind of returning to normalcy. And what's going on at this time? Well, the disciples have a question. And surprise, surprise, it revolves around the kingdom. The disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it just feels off, doesn't it? You're just kind of like, what? Kind of feels like they've missed Jesus' point mostly, doesn't it? Has there been any point that we've been over in these 18 chapters now where Jesus in his teaching called them to clamor for greatness? Is there any point where Jesus said, seek greatness in my kingdom by stepping on other people? Or, or, or fussing about who's the greatest. Nowhere. Nowhere. But yet, here they are. And it's actually a little worse than it looks here in Matthew. Look at Mark's account. We're going to read Mark 9, 33 through 34. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I'm going to read that again. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Matthew says they brought the question up, but Mark points out that actually they had been arguing about it on the trip home. They'd been arguing about who was the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Well, it couldn't be you, Simon. It's got to be me. Well, you're crazy, John. It can't be you because it's me. It's got to be me. I'm the goat. And they were arguing about it. These 12 men were arguing about who was the greatest of all time in Jesus' kingdom. And their argument was, it would seem like they were saying, I am. I'm the greatest. You didn't do this. I did this back when we were in this one village. I had that one kid, and man, I cast that demon out, and I stood there and praised. You know, they're arguing about who's the greatest, and they're pointing fingers to themselves. That's the argument they were having on their journey back to Capernaum. Like a bunch of kids squabbling in the car on the ride back from vacation. Dad likes me best. No, he doesn't. Mom and Dad both like me best. And these guys have been with Jesus for three years now. With Jesus in His presence for three years now. And they're arguing like a bunch of kids. 
And now Jesus calls them out on it, and they clam up knowing they were busted. Mark says they kept silent for, because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And then Matthew makes it seem like somebody went ahead and asked him. So Mark says, they're arguing about it. Jesus says, what were you arguing about? Uh Uh-oh. And then somebody piped up, well, we were wondering, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they're all with bated breath waiting for him to say, you are, or you are, or you are. The cat's out of the bag. Why not go ahead and get a consensus from Jesus himself, right? Go ahead and make Jesus tell who he is and who was and who will be the greatest. And note that they are expecting this answer to be about who is the greatest. They're not wondering about who will be or what might happen. They want to know their standing now. It's like me sitting and talking to Michael Jordan and asking him if maybe, maybe, Mike, you think I'm the greatest player in NBA history? And Mike doesn't say nothing. That's really what it's like. Tell me, Michael Jordan, where do I stand in this discussion of goatness? Am I on the list? Who's the greatest? I gotta be somewhere in the discussion, right? And he says, You're five foot six. So, no, you're not in the discussion. So they're like, Am I the greatest, Jesus? And how does Jesus reply to their question? Well, as is his usual, it's not in the way that they might have expected. Look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. So they asked Jesus who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and he calls a child to himself and puts that child in the midst of them all. And I'm sure they're like... Who's the greatest? Um, Jesus, not, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I get it. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Jesus hears their question and calls to himself a child. And the word child, be careful, this is important. The word child here means little child. So you're talking infant or toddler. Little child, very little. And that little child now becomes the focal point of this conversation of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus says, hey, bring me that baby. And like he has been so deftly good at his whole teaching career, the Son of God uses the most common of all things, a baby human being to answer a question and teach a valuable lesson about the kingdom of heaven. And he put him, this small child, in the midst of them. And now he'll expound on this small child and what it all means for them and their questioning argument. Look at verse 3. This is phenomenal. And said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now keep in mind, this child is sitting or standing, whatever, there. And Mark says in Mark 9, 36, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms. So now this little baby is in the arms of Jesus. So that makes me think this is a small child. 
So picture that. Jesus with this child in his arms, sitting with him, says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And my question is, is that not just awesome? I mean, really. He starts his statement with the familiar Jesus refrain. Truly I say to you. The word for truly is amen. Amen. I, Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, say to you, pronounce to you, explain surely to you. They knew when he said, truly I say to you, ooh, everything he said was true. But they knew when he said, amen, I say to you, they're like, uh-oh. We better lean in. We better dig in because he's about to lay some truth on us that is like true, 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 truth. And we better pay attention. Amen, I say to you. And note what he says. It's a phenomenal, amazing, wonderful, beautiful, overwhelming 15 words as you'll ever hear. And you don't have to count it. I I double-checked it. It's 15 words that we're about to look at. Note what he says. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of you are still counting. Stop it. It's 15 words. (laughs) Some of you are right. I'm going to count that later. Listen to me. I'm going to read it again. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what I would say this morning is, this is impossible to over-dissect and emphasize too much. It's impossible to overdo it here. They ask who's the greatest in the kingdom after arguing about it with each other, with their focus on themselves. And he brings a little child into their midst, sits that child on his lap in his arms, and then he drops this bomb. Who's the greatest, you ask? Who's the goat? Well, first, let me tell you how to even get in the game. We can't have a goat talk with you guys because you don't even understand how to play the game. You're not even really a participant in the game if you're focused on, worried about, or arguing about if you're the greatest or not. So let's start with square one. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, you might want to put off preparing your Hall of Fame speech, guys. Let's talk about fundamentals of the game. This is a ball. And the object of this game is to get that ball through that hoop. Let's start there. Let's talk about fundamentals. Let's talk about how to hold a bat. Let's talk about how to dribble a basketball, how to throw a football. Actually, let's talk about the rules of the game before we even do that. You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven without this. Unless you turn and become like little children. And again, that is absolutely loaded. When you see the word unless, it means that there's a condition that precedes everything else. Without this, there's none of that. If not something, then there's nothing. Everything turns on this. Everything turns on this. Unless what? Unless you turn. Now slow down even more here. This is the first of two necessities here. Unless you, one, turn, and two, become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But don't jump to conclusions too easily here. What does it mean to turn? You're like, well, it means 
You put your right hand in and turn your... No. That's really not what it's all about, y'all. What does it mean to turn? It means to turn around, right? To change, to repent. Well, yes and no. Because if you're not careful, what we're going to start doing is making a checklist. Number one, covered. I turned. I got to turn. Okay, I'll I'll turn then. I got to change to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? No. No. We don't tell people to get their act together before they come to Jesus. Do we? I hope not. The word turn in our text today is not a command. Now watch this. Let me bore you for just a second. The verb for turn is an aorist, passive, subjunctive, second person, plural verb. Let me explain that a little bit. Aorist means past tense. Passive means that the subject, you in this case, is not doing the action. The subject is not doing the action. The subject is being acted upon. You're like, what? I think the NASB gets this right. I think the ESV missed it. I think the NASB gets it right when it says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a big difference in being commanded to turn and being converted. There's a big difference between being commanded to do something and being told that you have to be acted upon. Now isn't there? And remember, Jesus is talking about how to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is pivotal. This is of utmost importance to understand if we are going to know what it even means to be saved. The disciples want to know who's greatest. Jesus wants to make sure they know what it means to be in the kingdom, period. He knows that this knowledge is much more important than ranks and status points. As a matter of fact, there is no rank or status without this first. So unless you are converted, unless you turn, or or more literally right, unless you are turned, this discussion can go no further. But that's not all that Jesus said. He didn't just say that they and we had to be converted. No, he also said that citizens of the kingdom must become like children. Now, what's that mean? Well, now let's turn our focus to this little kid in Jesus' arms. This little kid sitting on Jesus' lap. Here's the object lesson. Look at this precious child, Jesus is saying. I don't know how old this child is, but again, the word for child implies baby or toddler. So we're gathering these very young. He's in Jesus' arms. So Jesus with this very young little boy, because it says him, this very young little boy in his arms calls for people to be converted and to become like children. To become like this child in Jesus' arms. Completely resting on Jesus. Being cared for by Jesus. Protected by Jesus. Wrapped in the arms of Jesus. Focused solely on Jesus.
Little children are completely dependent on others for all their needs, all their wants, all their life. You want to know how to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, look at this baby. Unless you are converted and this is your posture, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's one gate and this is it. Being converted and resting in the arms of Jesus. Woo! This, Jesus says, precedes everything else. This is the most important thing. Greatness? You guys are missing the point if you're focused on greatness. I have something better. How about conversion and rest? Anybody need some rest recently? My goodness, it was tough to go to bed last night. The world is on fire. And the world needs rest, not greatness. So Jesus is talking about conversion and rest. Then we can talk about greatness. Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Having addressed entrance into the kingdom, now Jesus turns to what greatness in that kingdom looks like. Having been converted and then resting in and with Jesus, well, now there's greatness. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now again, remember this child is in the arms of Jesus. Cradled in the arms of Jesus. Look at this child. See him now. Go there in your mind. Think about it. Think about a little child in the arms of Jesus. I want you to see him. I want you to think about him. What's he doing? He's resting. He's reposing. He's enjoying. He technically is not doing anything. Jesus called him. Jesus picked him up. Jesus placed him in his arms. And Jesus is holding him. And he is at the least content. I would guess he's more like elated just to be there with Jesus. Jesus with and for him. He is humble. The word means to be ranked below someone who is honored or rewarded. To rid oneself of pride. To have a modest opinion of oneself. To behave in an unassuming manner. Devoid of all haughtiness. Not hotness. Haughtiness. Devoid of all haughtiness. For example, this kid laying in the arms of Jesus. That's what it means to be. Humble. Now, while children are naturally selfish and sinful like the rest of us, they are surely devoid of haughtiness. They don't presume to know how to care for themselves. Again, think about like a one-year-old, a baby, an early toddler. I remember, I don't know why I remember it, Lily's birthday was this past week, and I remember when she was a baby. Man, I, I laid her down in the crib, and I was getting ready to go to bed, and it washed over me. I'm like, she is completely helpless. 
If this place catches on fire, she cannot save herself. And I got real sad. I got real sad for Lily laying in that crib. And then she probably threw up or something and I had to clean it up or something. But she was helpless. She went where I put her. She laid down where I laid her. And she stayed there until somebody got her out of there. So it is with us. We don't presume to know how to care for ourselves. We can't feed ourselves, bathe ourselves, care for ourselves. And I'm talking in the spiritual realm here. And just like a baby, we have no choice but to trust somebody else for our very lives. So whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever rests in Jesus... In his arms, on his lap, making no efforts or strivings of his own, delighting in their position with Jesus, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now can you imagine the hearts and minds of the disciples as they heard and saw this right in front of them? They had been arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven and they were asserting, I would think, that it was themselves. Thinking of all that they had done. All that they had seen and been a part of. And then Jesus parades in this little child. Cradles him in his arms. Cuddles him, draws him close. And then levels the disciples with the simplicity and power of this vivid illustration. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you want to be great? Jesus says... Humble yourself like this child. Rest in me. Delight in me. Stop your striving, your arguing, your complaining, your efforts, your self-promotion. Stop. Cease. Rest. Delight. Focus on me. Listen to me. Trust in me. Greatness in my kingdom, Jesus says, in the kingdom of the heavens is dependent on Jesus. And on knowing your complete inability, your complete submission to Jesus, your complete lack of rank in and of yourself. This is the greatness in my kingdom. And note that here, the call to action is to the one who will humble himself. Now here's a command. You've been converted and you've become like a child. Now humble yourself like this child. And again, you want to make your checklist? What have I got to do? Humble yourself. There's your list. What have I got to do to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And I promise you, if you don't humble yourself, you will be humbled. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself. This verb is an active verb, not a passive one. Once converted, once childlike, this person sees and knows their status and humbles himself, humbles herself, appropriating the truth of their dependence on Jesus into their lives, knowing that He, Jesus, is great, and that we, individually and together even, 
are only great in and with Him. No standing of their own, but no limits to their standing when they rest in Him. This is humbling oneself, and that is what leads to greatness in this kingdom of the heavens. Who's the goat, Jesus says? This little baby here is the goat. This little baby is the greatest in my kingdom. And you can be the greatest in my kingdom if you will humble yourself and put yourself in this position. Recognize your position. This baby here and anyone who looks and acts like him is truly great. And here's the good news. It's available. It's available for anyone who reads these words and trusts in this Savior. So that turns us to what? Application. I wrestled this week with how many verses to cover in this message. And I vacillated 4, 9, 10, 14. Actually, near the end of the week, I'm like 14. We're going to cover 14 verses this week. And we're going <laughs> to... Okay, so we went back to four, and I'm so glad that it ended up this way. There is so much to consider here, so much to take in, so much to apply on so many different levels, and these four verses really set up the next several paragraphs leading through the rest of the chapter. So it's really, really, really important that we get a hold of what's going on here in these four verses if we're going to be able to comprehend and apply the next several messages. But anyway, like I said, we'll turn our attention to applying these four verses. And just like last week, we got three Ps. I don't know why it worked out that way. It just did. Okay? Pardon my lack of variety. We got 26 letters to choose from, and I just keep choosing the same one. Sorry. Not sorry. You know what I am sorry about? Sidebar. I need to apologize to your breath, because after wearing this mask, I realized that, wow, there's something wrong with me. So, anyway... (laughs) Three P's. This week's P's are principles, process, and place. Principles, process, and place. Now again, remember, application, we're looking for what should we be doing differently? How should our thinking change? How should our actions change? As a result of the Holy Spirit applying these things to our hearts and our lives. Not just three P's, principles, process, and place, but what does it mean for us to look like, feel like, think like, do like in light of it? So the first one is principles. And the principles that we're talking about are the principles of the kingdom of the heavens. The principles of the kingdom of God. Because I'm afraid, and I know for me, let me say it this way, I know for me, when you start talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's kind of nebulous, right? It's kind of like, eh, what is it? And we've talked about it a lot. We talked about it back in Matthew 13. We've talked about it a lot through the 18 chapters of Matthew that we've been through. But what are the principles of the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God about? What, are the kingdom of, what is the kingdom of the heavens like? And how should we live in light of the truths of this kingdom? Well, one thing that I really want you to see as far as principles go is that this, the principle of the kingdom of the heavens is an already but not yet principle. Okay? The kingdom has come and the kingdom will come. 
We see the kingdom in part right now. And one day we'll see it in its fullness. Jesus is on the throne. We said that earlier. There's no doubt about that. But do we right at this time see all things in subjection to him? Again, turn on the news. We do not. Does that mean that Jesus is not on the throne? Absolutely not. Jesus is on the throne. The kingdom is firmly established. And we don't see it in its fullness and completion yet. So don't lose hope. There's one application point. The kingdom of the heavens is fully established and will be fully established at the end of all things. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll get to that at the very end. That's going to happen. And as injustice continues to happen and continues to happen and continues to happen, we may scratch our heads and wonder, is he really on the throne? And he is. The already but not yet principle. Here's the other principle that I really want you to get a hold of. And there's probably a million. We're going to focus on two. The other principle is this. I am supposed to live in light of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's my responsibility now. As a follower of Jesus. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter 2, 9-12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So you are in the kingdom. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? Say, well, nothing matters because I'm going to heaven one day. It's quite the opposite. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You're citizens of a different kingdom, so you show that through your conduct. I am Christ's. I belong to Christ. I am resting in Christ's arms. So I'm going to act different than the rest of the world. Why? So that you keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will. Still they're going to look at your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I saw those Christians and I saw how they acted. I hated them and I persecuted them. But I saw what they did. In the early Roman Empire, when when they were persecuting Christians, their statement was, look how these Christians die. Marching to the stake to be burned, singing hymns of praise to God. And they had to come up with false allegations. Well, they won't worship our God. And they knew deep in their hearts, there's something about these people. That's not all. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Brothers, Paul says... Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you go back to the beginning of that, Paul says, be like me. Act like I'm acting. Now, wait a second. Hold on just a second. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Christian, can you look at other Christians and say, be like me? Imitate me. Because the things that I'm doing are pleasing to God and it's an example for you to follow. You say, well, nobody should follow in my footsteps. Then you're not living right as a citizen of the kingdom of the heavens. You should be able to look at other Christians and say, walk like me. Because I have a stake in the kingdom of the heavens and I want to give an example to you. Last verse in this application point, Hebrews 13, 12 through 16. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, as citizens of the kingdom, like Him, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good. And to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You say, well, now you're giving us a checklist. No. What I'm giving you a checklist to check is to see as things are present in your life. Because if you are in the arms of Jesus, resting in Him, these things are going to be obvious in your life. You're going to be doing good. You're going to share what you have. Why? Because those are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God in His kingdom. And as citizens of that kingdom, this is how we will walk. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we said this is not a list of things to do. It's a list of characteristics that show who the true people of God are. Do you recognize, Christian, that you are a part of the kingdom of the heavens and therefore your conduct should reflect somebody who is a citizen of the kingdom of the heavens? Obedient to that king at the expense of everything else. Everything else. The principles of the kingdom show us how we are to live. Point two, the process. Now this, we're going to get into it here. Process. What is the proper process of conversion? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? This is a hotly debated subject for thousands of years of Christian history. And you want to get people mad, start talking about this kind of stuff. We ain't going to get mad this morning. You might get mad. Heck, I might get mad. Let's get mad. No, let's not. The Ordus Salutis. The order of salvation. We see it in our passage today. Perfectly. Let me, let, me, let me go walk through the passage and let's see the order of what happened here. First we saw sin. And the sin was the disciples arguing with one another. Then Jesus addresses the sin. That's conviction. Jesus sat down. That's important. Because he's going to teach on the subject. Sitting down is a place of rest. Jesus sat down. 
Jesus called a child to himself. Jesus put that child in their midst. Jesus took that child in his arms. And then he told the disciples that they had to be converted, become like children, and then humble themselves. There's your order of salvation. The only thing we didn't include in that is that this was ordained before the foundation of the world, which precedes everything. Who did that electing? God did that electing. You say, I don't like that doctrine. I don't care. I, I don't care. You say, well, that's not nice, Jason. Well, here's the deal. You have to know the proper process of being converted or you're never going to be converted. What am I saying? I'm saying you did not, nor could you ever save yourself. Nothing you can do to save yourself, ever. It is imperative that we understand that. That the author, the giver, the server of salvation is God Himself. Salvation belongs to our God. Often used, and we'll use it more and more and more as we continue, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. I would go back to emphasize verse 9. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Emphasis on verse 5. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And two verses out of Romans 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's verse 20. And then verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, why is this important to know? Because if you are doing anything to try to save yourself, you are on the wrong road. And it will never lead to salvation. 
Well, I gotta, well, I gotta, well, I gotta, well, I gotta, well, I gotta. No, you don't gotta. Come here. Give me that baby. I'm going to take that baby in my arms. I'm going to cradle that baby. I'm going to hold that baby. I'm going to keep that baby secure. And that baby is resting. Knowing this helps us maintain our proper place in the salvation equation. We did not and could not save ourselves. So therefore, all the glory goes to who? It goes to God. I don't stand up and boast about what I've done and how I'm the greatest because look at all this stuff I've done in my life. Therefore, God must really be proud of me. That's why He saved me. You can't say that. Because of what I did, He did what He did. No, that's not the way salvation works. Because of who He is and because of what He's done, because of God, because of the great love with which He has loved us, He saved us. And that is imperative so that he gets the glory for it. So that I don't stand and boast of my works. And how I'm the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. Because of everything that I've done. I boast in his greatness, his goodness, his glory, his grace. And I rest in him. Which sounds an awful lot like humility, doesn't it? Which is our last point. We have looked at principles, process, and finally, our last application point is what? Place. Place. Know your proper place. Knowing that you have no rights, no abilities, nothing deserved in and of yourself, but... Knowing your position in Christ who has all power and will receive all glory. This is humility. Your place is to be humble. You have to rest in the arms of Jesus. You have to trust in the grace of Jesus. You have to give yourself to Him realizing that He has brought you into His presence for His purposes, for His grace. My place is to rest in the arms of of Jesus, and this is greatness in the kingdom of the heavens. What's your place? Twofold. First and foremost, listen, you have been caused to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 1 through 7. Listen to this. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what we've done. That's what we do. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Your first position, the first place you've got to realize that you are, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, is that you have been caused to be seated in Christ. 
The command here is not get up, walk over and sit down with Jesus. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him. And the picture from today's passage is that God laid us in the arms of Jesus. That's your position in Christ. And we have to know that. We have been caused to be seated with Christ. We rest, relax, repose, and rejoice in the arms of Jesus because that's what it means to be born again. I've been placed there by God Himself. Think about that. Think about being that child. Think about being like that child. And God Himself scoops you up and places you in the arms of Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Father says, I've got a gift for you. Jesus, and he scooped you up and laid you in the arms of Jesus. That's your place. That's your position in Christ if you are saved. Do you get it? The principles are in place. The process is the process, and we didn't set that forth. Jesus, uh, God did. We've got to know our position in all of this. And we forget. You think the disciples got it? (laughs) Well, let me read you this passage. I've got two passages that explain this and then we'll be done. This is the night before Jesus died. Luke 22, 24 through 27. In the upper room, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves for... Who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But, Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. The night before he died, they're having the same stinking goat argument. So how does Jesus address that? John 13, 2 through 17. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, And us, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now watch this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Unless you are converted and become like a child and then humble yourself, you'll never know greatness in the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus displayed it for us perfectly. And we can't not visit this passage as we end. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Know the principles of the kingdom. Know the process of your salvation. And know your place both in Christ and in your responsibility to humble yourself for the sake of your brothers and sisters here and for the sake of your neighbors out there. This is true greatness in the kingdom of the heavens. Let's pray. Father, we have no way of saving ourselves. But you have given the perfect plan, the perfect process, and the perfect sacrifice to take our place. We celebrated it through song. We celebrated it through the table. We saw it in the word that you are causing all things to be made new. And if we will look to you, granted conversion by your grace... You will speak life into us. We will repent. We will believe. We will trust. We will rest. We will humble ourselves in your presence and the presence of other people so that you might have glory in our lives. God, apart from you, we cannot and we would not. But through you, not only can we, we will. And we will lead others to the same place for the same purpose, your glory and our good. Help us, God, to be these people. Help us to be the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens as we humble ourselves by the power of your Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction as we finish? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.